10 seconds to impact. You probably don't mind hearing that a lot of the times, but if you're on an airliner and your captain comes on and says, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain. Just wanted to let you know we just left our, we lost, lost our left engine. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain again. You're not going to believe this. Whoops, we lost the right engine. Uh, we only got two. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in 10 seconds to impact. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, brace for impact. You don't want to hear those words. But there are times when bracing for impact or 10 seconds to impact is not a bad thing. I was surprised to learn as I came up with this sermon title that there is a website entitled, you guessed it, 10 Seconds to Impact. And what it is all about is, is personal, uh, personal appearance, body language when you go to meet someone. You've got just about 10 seconds to make a favorable impression. Now, if it's just a new friend, that's not a big deal. Um, if it's your first date and you really like the girl or the guy, it's pretty big. Perhaps, though, this is your one shot at a career job you wanted so badly. You've got just about 10 seconds to make a favorable impact on that person. And a short time to do a lot. And you know, that's exactly where it is with the church today. We have a short time to really impact our culture. We've gone through the summer learning a little bit more about what we believe and why we believe that. And today's topic is the Christian and social order. The Christian and culture. The Christian and culture. You know, we have a really a small window to impact the culture in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've only done this a couple of times, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to run the risk of losing you and reading about nine lines from the Baptist faith in a message. And that's kind of the guideline. Uh, as you know, each Baptist church is autonomous, totally independent. There's no governing body over us. But this is a statement that in 2000, the Southern Baptists adopted as kind of a general guideline to what we believe. And this is kind of part of what they wrote, wrote in 2000 about the Christian and social order. Here's what it says. All Christians. How many? Yeah, yeah. All Christians are under obligation. And I really wonder why they chose that word because honestly, when you, when you finish what, hear what I'm fixing to say, what I'm fixing to read, it's really more of a command. It's not really like a suggestion from God. It really is a command. But, but anyway, they say obligation. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in their lives. All Christians are under obligation to make the will of Christ supreme in their lives. And you know what? We all would probably go, yeah, I agree with that. I'm a Christ follower. Don't always get it right. Don't always do it right. But yeah, I get that. I, I should really make the will of Christ in my, in my life supreme. I get that. That was okay. And then they said the words that are a pushback. Let me start over again. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our lives and in human society. Now, the pushback is this. I know. I know. You're, someone's going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who am I to force my beliefs on someone else in this culture? Who am I? Well, who you are is a Christ follower. And I'm sure the, the scriptural basis for this has got to be Matthew chapter 5 and 13 and 14, where Jesus said, 
you are the salt of the earth. What he was saying was, as salt preserves and salt flavors, as salt influences, so, as my believer, you are to influence the culture around you. He also said in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And just like light changes darkness, light changes darkness, so we are to change the culture. Now, let me just make something really clear. Someone needs to hear this today. You're better than nobody. We think sometimes just because we get our little pretty clothes on and we get up once a week and don't go to the golf course and don't go to the lake, we come to church. That somehow that makes us better. It does not. The Bible says every person has sinned. We are sinners, but we are redeemed sinners. We are forgiven sinners. That's what we are. So don't think just because you're sitting in God's house today, somehow you rank above those folks sitting out there. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. Now, this is important because I'm telling you, the lost culture knows how we think. And they know, they know that a lot of us sit in this building going, mm, we're better than them. We're better than them. We are not. We're not. So it's the best as we can portray the idea, the thought that, wait a minute, we're better than no one. We simply have our products of, of God's amazing, wonderful grace. We have been touched by God's amazing grace, and we want you to be touched by that same grace. If we can get that message across, it will really help our culture. So he goes on and says this. The, the text does. And this is so cool for today. Means and methods. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men, dot, dot, dot. Rule, excuse me, means and methods. Do you know what this is? This is a means and a method. Do you know what his table is on Thursday nights? It's a means and a method. Do you know what Judgment House is? It's a means and a method. Do you know what Bible school is? It's a means and it's a method. You know what blessing baskets are? It's a means and a method. Really, do you know what this is? It's a means and it's a method. So it's important we understand that that means and methods used for the improvement of society, again, feeding people, helping with school supplies, okay? Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men. Now listen, this is huge can be truly and permanently helpful, can be truly and permanently helpful only, only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, this really only is permanently helpful when it's rooted in the regeneration of an individual. In other words... We don't give away school supplies so a child will just have a pencil to write with. We give away school supplies in the hopes that that child or that mom or that dad will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every head of hair that Stephanie and her crew cuts today is cut in the hopes that that person may come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. As Angie and the crew cooks the meal today, every meal is served with the hopes that that person may come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every time you serve a meal at Thursday night on his table, it's not about hungry stomachs. It's about broken hearts. It's about lost people and the prayer and the hope that somehow, some way, that person will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. 
We've got a short bit of time to impact our society. And one of the best ways we can do that is by loving people in the name of Jesus Christ in tangible ways such as school supplies and meals and clothes through the mercy corner. But we do that all with the hopes of sharing the Lord Jesus Christ and them being regenerated, experiencing the power of Jesus Christ. So that's what we want to talk about today. How can we be, as, as God's hands and feet, how can we be impactful in our culture? Now, to do that, I want to go to Mark chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5. And, and the opportunities and ways of doing this were so large. It's such a big topic. Again, all these topics have been large. But I settled on Mark chapter 5 because it talks about one man who really represents culture who really represents culture. And there is a man, and he encounters Jesus Christ in a very powerful way. And I want to tell his story, and in the process of telling his story, I want to tell culture's story and our story today. It involves the fact that Jesus Christ invaded the earth 2,000 years ago. We call it Christmas. 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and dwelt among men, lived a perfect sinless life, and died on a Roman cross like this because the Bible says that the payment for sin, the wages for sin, is death. Someone had to die for our sins, and Jesus Christ did that. Not accidentally, but on purpose. With the total story from Genesis to Revelation being the redemption, the rescue of man. So he invaded earth. You know, it's, it's an old story. Students, um, I'm sure y'all still study this in high school and, and middle school, is the invasion of Europe on January 6, or excuse me, June 6, 1944. Starting in 1939, that's a zillion years ago, but in 1939, a guy named Adolf Hitler started just wrecking havoc in Europe. He started with the invasion of Poland and would not and did not stop. Millions, someone say millions. Millions of people died. Jews alone, Jews alone, over 6 million Jews were exterminated under the reign, if you will, of Adolf Hitler. It was horrible. It was horrible. And finally, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces launching from England crossed the English Channel and landed in France. And their purpose was this to retake what had been wrongfully stolen. To retake what was wrongfully stolen. Jesus Christ invaded this world 2,000 years ago to retake what was wrongfully stolen. What Satan had stolen through sin, Jesus came to reclaim, to buy back, to redeem, and to rescue. Amen? Amen? So, so we got the setup, and it even begins with an invasion. The story begins with an invasion. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, and we see this, what I call on the sermon sheet, the plight of sin. The word plight means dangerous, difficult, or an unfortunate situation. So it begins with a picture, an image of the plight of sin. So let's look at the invasion that Jesus created in Mark chapter 5. They, and that would be Jesus and the 12 guys, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. Now, you've got to pause there because, again, the parallel is so powerful. Keep in mind, those allied forces who landed in French soil, it was no longer French soil. It was owned by Adolf Hitler. So they were going into the land of the enemy to reclaim what was wrongfully taken. 
And so Jesus comes, and then in this particular case, in this particular illustration, he comes and lands in a pagan country. The land of the Gadareans was totally pagan. They couldn't even spell God. Well, they could, but it was a small g. Everywhere you look in the land of Gadareans were small g gods. Okay? But they had no concept and no idea of the one true God. So Jesus invades and lands on the shore of the land of the Gadareans. And the Bible says this. Now watch. This is so good. And when Jesus has stepped out of the boat. Now, I can just see them. You know, they're rowing ashore and the, and, and the sail's set and they're counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. Brace for impact. 2, 1. Touchdown. And the Bible says Jesus steps out of the boat, puts his foot on earth, and the Bible says immediately. How quick? Immediately. Immediately. Ten seconds to to impact. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, knowing what we know, what I've already told you about the fact that this was a pagan land, this is not a surprise. This is a culture that's totally lost, totally depraved. It's no surprise when the Son of God steps on terra earth, okay, the first thing he encounters is a demon-possessed man. And unusually, he comes out of the tombs because he had an unclean spirit. How unusual. He comes out of the tombs. You know, I was riding my bike. Uh, Friday, I rode to Carrie Mills and back. And I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm, I'm well out of Harrisburg, past Leftford, in that area where it's just, there's nothing. And I look ahead and I see something. And I, you, know, you kind of go, what is that? It's kind of early, but what is that? As I get closer, it's a man. And the man is laying down in the weeds. And you know what my first thought was? Oh, no. I went by, and his hands were under his head. Young man, young man. And he was kind of curled up like this, and I said, that guy's sleeping. So I came back, and fortunately he had rolled over, and I said, oh, okay, you know, well, he's definitely alive. But what caught me off guard was I saw a man where there, where there shouldn't have been a man. I mean, I, you know, Stephanie, when I go by your shop up there, when I ride my bike out toward Muddy, you know, they're sleeping on the benches all the time. Guys don't have a place to live. So they curl up there, they get a blanket, and they sleep on the bench. This guy didn't have a towel. And it really caught me off guard. He shouldn't have been there. And this guy, demon-possessed guy, comes out of the tombs. Now, there's a lot of people in cemeteries, but they're dead. But this guy is alive. And he finds his place, his home, in the tombs. And then watch in verse 3. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And here's where we see that, it's a big word, societal response. We see the response of society. What does society do with a man like that? What what do you do with a man who lives in the tombs and who is demon-possessed? The only response they had was they had an outward solution for an inward problem. It never works. An outward solution for an inward problem. So they have taken him in the past and bound him with chains. 
But I want you to notice how the societal response fails. It fails because it says, and again, verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, anymore, not even with a chain. In fact, it goes further in verse 4 and says this, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Now, that's what makes our mission so important. If man somehow, and he doesn't, but if man had some kind of a solution for the sin problem, our mission wouldn't be so great. If a 12-step program could solve the sin problem, if a religion could solve the sin problem, if church could solve, if being baptized could solve, if being good could, could solve, the issue wouldn't be so great. But the truth is, no religion... No act of good works, no religious activity can solve the sin problem. Sin is greater than any man, in fact, the collection of the whole. You could put all the brains together, all the activity together in the whole world, and it cannot take care of the sin problem. And that's what society doesn't realize. Society thinks that somehow man will figure it out. Man can't figure it out because man can't fix man. Only God can fix man. We've got, listen, church, we've got to understand this. We've got to get this. There's a desperate, there's a desperate, there's a desperate need outside these walls. These people who will come through our building today have desperate needs. These are perilous times. I remember the story, and you do too, because I've told it a couple times, and it's powerful every time it's told, about a woman who was going to commit suicide. And she realized that she could not commit suicide. She was going to do it that day on a Sunday. That she could not commit suicide without her kids being taken care of. So she had determined before she killed herself, she would bring her kids up here and get the school supplies that they needed and then take her own life. And she got here and she felt something different. She got here and felt something different. I'm here to tell you, her own words, she did not take her life. She did not go home and take her life because she sensed the love of Jesus Christ in this place. The people who come through these doors today will have intense, dangerous needs, and we need to be Christ to them, to them to them. It's just hugely important. So he goes on and says in verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. I think about that Psalm 142.4 we used just a couple weeks ago. The man cried out and said, no, I looked to my right and no one cared for my soul. Society, whether they recognize or not, is in deep pain because no one cares for their soul. They feel and he was cutting himself with stones. That's where society is. Society is drifting along without any kind of a rudder, without any kind of directional device, just cruising along, bumping into walls. And they need a Savior. They need a Savior. Because we're talking about social order, 
There are two things that I believe, and I, I won't spend much time. We don't have much time. But there are two things that I believe picture clearly the plight of sin in our culture today. And the first is the lack of the sanctity of life. It's on your sermon sheet as life matters. Life matters. You know, every year in January, this church observes Sanctity of Life Sunday. And every year we make it a point to pause and pray for God to change our culture. But I did something I haven't done in a while, it seems. It just really struck me, though. I went ahead and typed in my little Google machine and said, Hey, Google, how many abortions have been performed in America since 20, or since 1973 up through 2018? And the number was just over 60 million abortions. 60 million abortions. And, you know, right below that said, 60 million abortions in America, fact or myth? I said, well, somebody's going to shoot it down. Nope. 60 million reported abortions in America. The population in America today is 326 million people. If you do the math, that's about 18%. If you, were to take, if you were to take 60 million and carve out of our population, about 18%, almost one-fifth of the population would be gone. And I'm telling you, here's the scary part. Is that when a culture loses the sanctity of life, it implodes. It implodes. When it loses the value of human life, there are dire consequences. I would not say, and don't quote me as saying, that when we see the mass genes, all that's all because of Roe versus Wade, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we live in a culture that has lost the sanctity of life. Life doesn't matter. And when life doesn't matter, there are consequences throughout society. It's like throwing a pond in a lake and the ripples spread out. That's what's happened. I want to tell you something. Life matters to God. And life should matter to us. And by the way, I've got to pause just in case there's someone here who's gone through the tragic of an abortion and, and you feel all of a sudden this wave of guilt washing over you, you just know something. That there's a God of, of love and God of forgiveness. And God will forgive that and any other sin when we ask Him to. And you'll find no rock-chugging preacher on this stage. Because the Bible's again, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Just in case you're here and you need to hear that. Well, Psalm 139, 13 says, For it was you... Talking to, to God. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Again, life matters to God. Over in Jeremiah 1.5 it says, God speaking to, to Jeremiah says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah was even born, God appointed him as a prophet. And you know, as I get older in this preaching gig, I think about things that we've thrown away, thrown around so casually. And how many times have I heard some preacher say, and perhaps I've said it, you know, who knows that the, the next Billy Graham wasn't aborted? Who knows that the greatest president wasn't aborted? Who knows if the guy is going to find the cure? And we just kind of flippantly throw that stuff out. But for whatever reason, this caused me to pause. 
I, I paused and I said, God, what have we done to our culture? If you start back in 1973, those men and women would now be 45 years old in the prime of their life. And you wonder, just like God appointed this, this prophet, to be Jeremiah, to be a prophet, who had God appointed that died in the womb? We will never know. But it's a frightening thought when we realize that 20% of the American population has been done away with. Murder through abortion. And let me just throw this one out too, just for freebie. In verse 6 he goes, but I protested, Jeremiah did. I protested, oh no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. Don't don't under-evaluate yourself. Don't evaluate yourself too lowly. There's someone sitting in this room today who says, I, God could never use me because of this, and God could never use me because of that. Don't you believe that? God can use you. I mean, we could fill in the blank. Oh, no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak since I am only. What would you fill in the blank? I'm too short, too tall, too heavy, too fat, too skinny, not educated enough, failed here, failed there. God is in the business of rebuilding, redeeming, rescuing, and using people. People. Don't say, I am only. In fact, God says that in Jeremiah. Do not say, I am only a youth. For you will go everywhere I send you, to everyone I send you, and speak wherever I tell you. So the bottom line is this. That there's a culture out there that God could use in wonderful ways. One of my favorite scriptures is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Out there are millions of masterpieces just waiting for the application of God's grace on their life. And we must not make that decision for them. They would never trust Christ, we say. Really? Do we know that? Why don't we leave that in God's hands? Why don't we just be obedient to do what God's commands to do? Go and share the gospel and leave the rest of it in his hands. So life matters. It's a big deal. And it's a, it's a snapshot of our culture. But also purity matters. Purity matters. You know, the 60s were crazy. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Free love. It was crazy. But what has taken place in the last 10 years in America makes the 60s pale. We have gone crazy. We have gone crazy in the the culture and the sexual revolution what's happening now. I was shocked to realize just three years ago the Supreme Court rewrote marriage where a man can marry a man, a woman, a woman. Just three years ago. And I'm telling you, I never dreamed I would see what I have seen in the last 10 years. So God says in Romans in chapter 1, he says, claiming to be wise, culture, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. Claiming to be so wise, they became fools. You remember what Psalm 14 says? The fool has said in his heart there is no God. The fool says. It's a foolish thing for culture to pretend like there is no God. He goes on and says, Therefore God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, 
so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. So there is a, another snapshot of culture. And again, I'll be honest with you. Dwight, are you being vague on purpose? I am. I'm sorry, I'm just a little old-fashioned. It's hard for me to talk about those kind of things from the pulpit. But parents, you better be talking to your kids. Someone is. Someone is. And lastly, in this three snapshots, matters matter. When you, when you look at the sanctity of life and sexual impurity and all that's going on there and put those two together with this third one in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, they didn't think it's worthwhile. Does that sound like our culture? It does. They did not think it worthwhile to, uh, to acknowledge our God. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness and full of envy and murder and quarrels and deceit and malice. They're gossips and slanderers and God-haters and arrogant and proud and boastful and vendors of evil, um, um, disobedient to parents, sinless, sinless, senseless, unmerciful, untrustworthy, unloving. And although they knew God's just sentence, that those who practice such things should die, they not only do them, they applaud others who practice them. Is that not our culture? It is. It is. And the answer is not nine steps or twelve steps. The answer is not Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian. The answer is Jesus Christ. I believe it with all of my heart. Jesus Christ is the answer. Our challenge is to keep our religion out of the mix and make sure we represent Jesus Christ as the solution. So, back to our story in Mark chapter 5. So Jesus steps. The first guy to meet him is this crazy guy. All right? But look what happens in verse number 6 of Mark 5. So when he saw Jesus, the the guy that was demon-possessed, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now there's hope there. Here's a demon-possessed man. He sees Jesus, and what does he do? He falls down before him. And he says these words, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, by God, do not torment. And the reason why he said all that was, for he was saying to himself, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So the demonic response to Jesus is, They fall down at his feet. Isn't it funny? Demons are smarter than most people. Demons know. You know, and James, James says, you know, the devils believe and tremble. They shudder. Demons are smarter sometimes than we are. They fall down at the feet of Jesus. Now watch this. That doesn't sound too impressive until he goes a little bit further. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. I checked to make sure I knew what I was talking about. A Roman legion consists of 5,000 soldiers. So theologians agree that whatever legion means, and again, I verified it's 5,000, that's how many demons were in 
this man. Now, here's what I want you to get. It wasn't one demon falling at the feet of Jesus. At the mere, at the mere presence of Jesus, 5,000 demons surrender. That's the power we need to change our culture. That's why you don't need to tell the world about your Baptist religion. You don't need to tell the world about your Presbyterian religion. You need to tell the world about your Savior who at the, at the mere presence, demons fall to their feet. Demons fall to their feet. We are many. We are 5,000. But they're graveling at the feet of Jesus. Well, to make the story shorter... They see some pigs, oh, the demons see pigs, and they say, hey, Jesus, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus allows them to go into the pig, and the pigs jump off a cliff, and they all drown. And then we pick up. I call this a societal response. How does society respond to Jesus? How do they respond to Jesus? Well, let's see. So the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. In other words, when the pigs jumped off of the cliff, all right, the pigs are gone, the guy's taking care of them, ran into the city and tells everyone in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man. Everybody knew the demon-possessed man. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, the 5,000, Sitting there. He, he didn't know what it was to sit. He was sitting there. He was clothed because he was naked before. Really wrecks havoc with the property values. And in his right mind, and they were afraid. Here was this man that they had tried to tame. They had tried to change. And they had tried to chain. And they could not do it. And they walk up. And there's this wild man sitting there totally in his right mind. And it freaks them out. Jesus can freak you out. Jesus can do that. Well... In verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man. said, we were here, we saw it. You know, the, the, the demon-possessed man was laying there, 5,000 of them. He, you know, can we go to the pigs? Yeah, go to the pigs. Pigs jumped off. We saw all that happen. They saw it happen to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were glad the nuisance was gone. But they did not like the picture of the future. Because if there is a God and this is Him, then we have to obey Him. And they weren't too sure they want anyone telling them how to run their lives. You know why God is so unpopular with culture? You know why some people say, I don't believe in God. You know why? Because if He is God, He's to be obeyed. That's the problem with our culture. Our culture is so self-absorbed. And they like serving what they want to serve. And they reject God. And the scariest, the scariest thing is this man's response. Well, not his response, but, but, but way it opened. And he was getting into the boat. The people say, we don't want Jesus. And he leaves. You know why America ought to be just a little bit frightened? 
They better be careful because one time too many, they're going to say, God, we don't want you. And God's going to say, okay. See, hell is about people getting their way. Hell is going to be filled with people who said, God, we don't want you. And God's going to finally say, okay. And they're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. God simply gave them what they wanted. It's a scary thought that Jesus left this culture because the people begged him to leave. That's frightening. Well, the guy, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. In other words, he goes there and says, Jesus, can I go with you? I don't want to stay here. Can I go with you? And you know what Jesus said? No. No. And it seems strange to hear the rest of the story. And verse 19, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The need for you to stay here is greater than the need of you going with me. Because this was a dark culture that needed light. This was a flavorless culture that needed salt. And brothers and sisters, that's the culture we live in. They need light and they need salt. So the man stays. The man stays. In fact, verse 20 says this, And he went away, the man did, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So he becomes a one-man deal. Didn't have, a, didn't have a Billy Graham Evangelist Association around him. Didn't have a church backing him up. He just took off and went. And everywhere he went in the Decapolis, and you need to know this, the Decapolis meant ten cities. There was an association of ten cities there. And he just went from city to city saying, i got to tell you about a man named Jesus. i got to tell you about a man named Jesus. i got to tell you about a man named Jesus. Over and over and over again, he tells the story. And you know what? It worked. See, you're, some of y'all sitting here, and sometimes your lack of faith pastor. I think about the billions of people lost in the world and going, how are we going to pull this off, God? Well, first of all, we ain't, he is. But we kind of like, can it really make a difference? Can we make a difference? Well, here's how it goes. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, now this part I will read to you. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, just what, two chapters later? Two chapters later? Here we go. And this is what verse 31 says. Then he, Jesus, he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus comes back. It hadn't been a whole long time now. It's only been two chapters in the Bible. Not that very far. So Jesus shows up back into Decapolis. Now, the last time he was here, Brenda, okay, what did the people say? Leave. Get gone. You're done. Don't want you. When he shows up this time, look what happens. Verse 32. And they, the people, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him, they begged him not to leave, but to lay his hand on him. 
What a difference. From begging him to leave, begging him to heal this man. Same people. Same group of people. Well, verse 37. Skip down just a little bit. And they were astonished. You know, Jesus heals him. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. What was the difference? One man. Now, one man sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Can, can you make a difference in culture? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. I'm going to step out on faith here and do something. But there is a young lady here today that hopefully you're going to be at the end of the service. And she's here today because one man at work shared Jesus with her. And she came today, and I had the privilege of sharing with her, and she prayed to receive Jesus Christ as Savior because one man was faithful. One man was faithful. One man was faithful. We can make a difference in culture. Now, you say, some of the skeptics here would say, yeah, but man, that's like one small group, like four people. I mean, yeah. You know, so the guy, so the guy convinces four people to hear about Jesus, and they bring this. Yeah, what? What's four people, Dwayne? How about four thousand people? Because you see, you advance just a little bit further, just a little bit further, and all of a sudden, there's a crowd of four thousand men plus women and children gathered to hear Jesus Christ talk. And to prove he's the son of God, he feeds all of them fish and chips. How'd that happen? One faithful man. Can the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, can it impact culture in the name of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. We have got to quit believing the lies that, that, that God is dead, that God's out of vogue, that America's so far down, and boy, she's way down the path, but America's so far down the road that she's beyond hope. As long as there's life, there's hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. God's not done with America yet. But we've got to be the church. We've got to be the church. And we get an opportunity. Brent, we get an opportunity today. We got an opportunity today. Again, think about it. Near, Judy, nearly a thousand people will pass to this room. And what we need to do, look for opportunities to share the gospel, pray with the people, we're going to pray with the people, but we got to be Jesus. I mean, they got to see something so unusual about us, they say, what is it about you people? What is it? And we get to say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Ten seconds to impact. Starting at the greeters at the front door. Ten seconds to impact. A smile, a handshake. We're glad you're here. We love you in Jesus' name. Ten seconds to impact. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the privilege of sharing today. Father, I confess to you my inadequacies. Sometimes the problem seems so big that it seems impossible. But that's only because I take my eyes off you and put them on the problem. Father, I want to thank you in Jesus' name for the privilege we're going to have this afternoon. And truly, week after week after week, we have the opportunity and the privilege to be Jesus, Father, in our community. I pray we'll do all things well. Holy Spirit, teach us to rely on you. We desperately need you.
because without you, we are nothing. You're nothing. Father, we pray during this time of decision. Lord Jesus, we already know of one person who's made a tremendous decision. We're grateful for that. But perhaps there's someone else here today who needs to trust Jesus as Savior. Father, would you bring them to talk to Brent this morning? Father, if we are here today and we have not been faithful, Lord, call us to your faithfulness again. Call us to serve today. Father, if someone's on the fence post today, and no guilt trip, Lord, I need to say that. But if someone's on the fence post about whether to serve today or not, Lord, just guide them and direct them, Father, to a place of service today. Father, because as much, Lord, as these folks need back to school, we need back to school as an opportunity to serve you. So this time is your time. And Jesus, I pray it in your precious name. Amen. Amen.